This is a talk by Joel titled Inner Renunciation, recorded October 15th, 2005 at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. The Hindu tradition distinguishes two main paths or approaches to enlightenment or gnosis. And the first one is Janana, which is often translated as knowledge, the path of knowledge or inquiry. And the second one is Bhakti, which is the path of love and devotion. And although other traditions don't use these two terms, uh, Bhakti and Janani, uh, they all have at least implicit in their uh, various kinds of practices, these two poles, we might actually call them, of love and truth, pursuing love or pursuing truth. So uh, this is not just specific to the Indian or Hindu tradition, although they have this very precise way of talking about it. And the difference really stems from the motivation of the seeker. So a Janani is motivated by intense curiosity, a longing for truth, a thirst for truth. Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What is all this? The bhakti is motivated by a longing and love for God. So it seems to be quite different. But actually, love and truth are two aspects of the same ultimate reality. Because what enlightenment or gnosis discloses is that there is no separate self. That the reality is a reality of selflessness. But then love, true love, is selfless. And we all know this from our own experience. Uh, the more you love someone, the more selfless you become, at least in relation to that person. At the very least, you start putting their interests on a par with yours. And if you really have uh, love, let's say, for a child, you'll put their interests above yours. So we could say, really, that love is the truth in action. Love is the truth of this ultimate non-dual reality because there is no duality between I and other, self and world, subject and object. So the action of that reality, the movement of that reality is selfless. It's love. So the goal of the path of Janana and the path of Bhakti is the same. The goal is the realization of this non-dual reality. Now, the biggest obstacle to attaining this kind of devotion, as it is for Jananis, attaining the kind of intense curiosity that they need to pursue their practices, the biggest obstacle is that we desire and are attached to worldly things. We're constantly trying to grasp on to worldly things. 
that we want, reject worldly things that we don't want, push that away. This occupies 90% of our time. And there's a good reason for it, too, and that is because under delusion, the only happiness that we've ever experienced is the ephemeral kind of happiness we get from worldly things. When you get the new car, the new house, the new job, the new dog, whatever it is. But it's fleeting, it's ephemeral. It wears off, so then we have to continue doing it. We get a little kind of happiness, and then it wears off, and this is exactly how addictions build up. And that's what's happened to us. And it's compulsive. We can't just decide to stop, usually. But if we are going to pursue a spiritual path, if we're going to concentrate on the beloved, the spiritual beloved, or we're going to pursue a janana path, investigation of truth, the nature of reality, we can't be distracted by all this. That's why Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and gain, worldly gain. So what we need to do is renounce the hope of ever finding happiness in pursuing worldly things. That is internal renunciation. You can also become an external renunciate and renounce possessing worldly things, which is what we're doing up here for this short period of time. But that is only a help to what's crucial is the internal renunciation. It's not crucial to become an external renunciate. In fact, it's harder to live in the world, but in some ways it's more fruitful to live in the world and to be an internal renunciate in the midst of the world. But we do need to be an internal renunciate, and it's a very precise definition. Sometimes it says we just renounce all the things of the world, and you'll read that often with mystics, but that's a shorthand. What's really being renounced is the hope that anything in the world is going to make you ultimately happy. Because that's the big fiction that keeps us going. We keep thinking, oh, oh, if only I got the right job, if only I found the right lover, if only I found the right house, then I'll be happy. And it isn't true. It's chasing a mirage. But if we renounce that hope, we can still live in the world fine. You'll have pleasures in the world, you'll have pain in the world, you'll have sorrows and all that, and none of that will have anything to do with ultimate happiness for you anymore. It'll all have something else to do with showing you the truth if you look at it carefully and stop looking at it through this dualistic lens of what I want, what I don't want, what I like, what I don't like. Give that up, and then the non-dual truth starts to actually reveal itself. So this business of renunciation you'll find in all traditions. It's extremely important. Here's what the Sufi master Harita says. I turned myself from this world and thirsted in the daytime and watched at night. But the trouble is that's easier said than done, especially in the beginning of a spiritual path. 
we learn about this intellectually, we read about this. If we read the stories of great mystics, we see what they did. We learn about the uh, futility of seeking worldly things. But in the heat of the action, in the busyness of the world, that grasping kicks in. So the big question is, how can we wean ourselves from these worldly attachments? Here's the answer given by the Christian mystic Simone Weil. We all know that there is no true good here below, that everything that appears to be good in this world is finite, limited, wears out, and once worn out, leaves necessity exposed. Men feel that there is a mortal danger in facing this truth for any length of time. That is true. Such knowledge strikes more surely than a sword. It inflicts a death more frightening than that of the body. After a time, it kills everything within us that constitutes our ego. In order to bear it, we have to love truth more than life itself. Those who do this turn away from the fleeting things of time with all their souls. So the key is to face this truth of impermanence, this truth we don't like to face. That is what convinces us of the futility of worldly pursuit. It's our own experience. We face impermanence in our own experience. We see it for ourselves directly. We not just see it intellectually, we feel it. We touch it. It's in our bones. It's in our veins. It's in our blood. Everything about us. It permeates everything, everywhere. That's what we have to touch into. That's the beginning of the truth of everything. So, we have to pay close attention, close attention to see the truth of this. Even though we know intellectually, we need to experience it. That's what convinces us. Experience convinces us. So that's why I like to start all uh, the retreats that I lead anyway with a little practice on contemplating impermanence. So that's what we're going to do today. We're just going to contemplate impermanence. So we use this mindfulness that we cultivate in meditation and we use the longing for happiness to motivate us to go see, is happiness possible here? Let's find out once and for all. And we look closely. And as we've done many times before, For the sake of this practice, we get rid of all other categories and we divide all phenomena arising and passing in consciousness into six categories. Sights, sounds, sensations, smells, tastes, and thoughts. And emotions can either fall under thoughts or sensations usually. It doesn't really matter. Anything that's not in the... In the sensory categories, just put it in the mental category, thought. 
And then we're going to watch and see if anything in those fields of consciousness, if anything in those fields is really permanent, if anything lasts for more than really seconds. And if it seems to, like a train whistle going by, then listen even more carefully. And you'll see it's made up of vibrations. Woo, woo, woo. It's not steady and constant. It's ever-changing. It's impermanent within its own little uh, moment it has of existence. If we're really careful watching, we see the shadows moving on what looks like a solid wall. We think it's a solid wall. What's solid about it? Right there is a very good example. If you watch a little bit, as the light even changes in the room, this close watching, close watching, to convince ourselves, okay, it's true. We cannot find true, abiding, lasting happiness in any of this stuff. And that's what creates internal renunciation. That's something we do by an act of will. We just realize it's futile. When we realize some task we're doing is futile, we tend to stop doing it. We may still have a habit, which we may still have to work on checking when we notice it's arising, notice grasping is arising or aversions arising, check it. But we no longer are identified with it. We recognize that it's futile, it's an old habit, it's old conditioning. And that's what frees our attention and allows our attention to go look for what is going to provide us true abiding happiness. Where are we going to find that? That's the next question down the line here. But first we have to be convinced there ain't no other place to look. So in a certain sense, you got nothing to lose. Maybe, maybe there is no such thing as true abiding happiness. Fine. You don't have to believe anything in mysticism. You just have to look. But you won't be willing to look, really look, and to let go of all that unless you're convinced, well, at least it's not here. So what do I got to lose by looking elsewhere? So we'll start with one round of guided meditation, and then the formal practice will be over, and I'll ring the bell, and we will file out, and we will continue our practice. We're not taking a break. We are continuing our practice informally. And please particularly continue it through dinner. It's a wonderful time to notice the impermanence at all kinds of levels. First, the fundamental impermanence of the smells and the tastes and everything that we don't usually notice that much. They aren't the strongest phenomena in our senses. But here at dinner time, they do become very prominent. But also, not only that, notice the impermanence of the desire and the aversion that arises in relation to the food. And then notice the impermanence of the pleasures or displeasures you get from uh, consuming the foods. See, there are a whole microcosm of opportunities here to learn about impermanence, about grasping, about pushing away, about attachment, about all those things, and how long does any of it last? Make sure you make a note of that. How long did any of the pleasures you experienced or aversions you experienced last? Is there any abiding happiness in eating? Okay? So.
let us begin by breaking through that usual stream of chit-chat that runs through our minds, by focusing on your sacred prayer or mantra or breath for a few minutes. Now watch your mantra or breath closely. And notice that it is impermanent. Focus in very closely and watch how it arises and passes. Now let go of your mantra breath and allow your attention to expand into your body field, the field of sensation. Become aware of the sensations. You might start with the head and move down to the shoulders arms, chest, etc., until you get to the toes. Just becoming aware of all the sensations that arise and pass.
if a particular sensation, say a tingle or an itch or a pain, tension, seems to persist, focus in on it and see if it isn't made up of a kind of series of little vibrations themselves are changing. Let your attention expand into the auditory field of awareness. Become aware of the sounds and their impermanence. The sound of my voice, which is impermanent. Now let your attention expand into the visual field. The visual field seems the most permanent. But if you will deliberately blink your eyes a few times, shift your gaze from right to left, up to down, even so slightly, the visual field changes. Later, when you are walking around the property, spend some time investigating the visual field in particular. And notice how radically it changes when you turn around and you look up at the sky or down at the earth. It's only a convention that tells us that it's all stable and we are moving through the environment. From the point of view of awareness, it's all moving through awareness. Endless stream of images, forms, colors.
any tastes or smells are present in consciousness, notice them, notice their impermanence. If not, remember to make note of them later when they do arise. See if they too aren't impermanent. Now expand your attention to include all the phenomena arising in the mental field, your thoughts, images, memories, expectations, If you've been thinking about impermanence, notice that the thought about impermanence is impermanent. Try to observe the stream of thoughts without getting sucked into the stories they weave. And notice they're all impermanent. And let your attention expand out through limitless field of consciousness awareness. And just observe whatever phenomena in any of the fields arises and passes away, how impermanent it really is.
See for yourself. Is there any phenomena in all this? Or a set of phenomena in all this? That you can really grasp and hold on to? That you can possess, have, keep? That will make you permanently happy? This isn't a question of right or wrong or good or bad. It's just a question of what is. It's a question of facing that truth that Simone Weil said was so profound to face. It can really change our lives if we let it. It can be the beginning a tremendous transformation in our lives if we're willing to face it. The kind of impermanence that we are least willing to face is the impermanence of our own bodies. The fact that we are all going to die in the bodily sense. And yet, from a mystical point of view, facing this aspect of impermanence can bring about the most profound changes in our lives. This is why Zen master Takeda Shingen said, Zen has no secret other than seriously investigating birth and death. What he's saying is the whole Zen trip comes down to this question of what is birth, what is death? What does that mean? And there are levels and levels of that investigation. The first is you have to face it. At the very least, if we face our own mortality, it will help wean us from worldly attachments and also worldly goals. You know, we're so concerned about the future, especially in this culture. We have these 
goals we want to attain and so forth, which is fine. You know, we do need to plan and all that, but we become so attached to them. Our happiness is just around the corner. Only I can accomplish this. Here's what the Sufi master, Sayyid Kab said. The world's misfortunes and cares become trivial for the man who is conscious of death. I once met a Christian monk, um, Brother Stendhal Rast, and I heard him talk at a conference in Boulder, Colorado. And he said every morning when he gets up, he places death on his forehead. And then he tries to live every day in this awareness, how impermanent life is. So every moment then becomes precious, becomes important. He doesn't waste any time worrying about trivial stuff. So it's an example of how facing death can change your life. It can change our perception of time in a rather dramatic fashion. This is one of my favorite quotes about this. I've read it to you many times before, but it's worth repeating. It's by the Kabbalist Abraham Abalafia. All is imagination and mockery, like a dream which passes by in the night, which, when the sleeper awakes from it, thus shall he find it. And even when he looks at the day past, he will see that all his days are like a passing shadow. Where is yesterday? Remember, we were all sitting here yesterday and Laura was over here and she was giving the orientation, advising you not to walk up on the bridge walk because the neighbor will come out with the dogs. Remember all that? Where is it? It's gone. And it's never coming back exactly like that. You might come back here. You might get another orientation from Laura, but it's never going to be that moment. Isn't this true? Like a passing shadow. So it gives us a different view of the past if we face the fact of death. That all this past that is our story, it's who we are, but it's all dying in every moment. For some people, facing death can change their whole life around very dramatically. Does anybody here not know the story of Prince Siddhartha? Everybody knows the story of Prince Siddhartha? You don't know it. Good, thank you. I got an Ananda in the house. (laughs) Prince Siddhartha became the Buddha eventually, but he was born Prince Siddhartha. And when he was born a uh, soothsayer or wise man or whatever, told his father, who was a king, that his son would either become a great king, even greater than his father, or he would become the Buddha, the awakened one, and he would point the way for the salvation of humanity. 
Well, his father had a very selfish view of what he wanted his son to do, and he would much prefer his son to follow in his footsteps and become a great king. So he thought about it, and he thought about it, and he realized what would motivate his son to go off and become enlightened would be the experience of suffering and death. So he gave orders to everybody in the palace that they should protect the young prince from any kind of suffering or any notion of death. And they filled the palace with uh, all sorts of pleasures. So the kid grew up just, you know, you talk about a protected kid, an overly protected kid. This kid was really overly protected. Wasn't exposed to anything. And he wasn't allowed to leave the palace. At night, even the gardeners would go out and they cut off the dead blooms from the plants and collect them. So he'd never experienced anything about death. So he grew up not knowing anything about this. But then he got curious uh, when he got to be a teenager or a little late teenager. So he convinced his charioteer to take him outside beyond the palace walls. So they went out, and it's actually three times that we can condense into one trip. They go out and they see, first of all, a sick man, all covered with sores and uh, jaundice, yellow and whatever. And Siddhartha says to a charioteer, what's that? And the charioteer says, that's a sick man. He's got a disease, he's got an illness. And Siddhartha says, well, gee, does that happen to everybody? And the charioteer says, almost everybody, yeah. Most people go through life, they can't avoid getting sick sometimes. And then they go a little farther, and he sees an old man walking along with a cane and arthritic knees and half-blind and decrepit. And Siddhartha says, what's that? And the charioteer says, that's an old man. And he says, well, does everybody get old? And the charioteer says, if you live long enough, you do. Everybody gets old. And finally, they see a corpse laid out there, already beginning to rot, beginning to smell in that high heat. And Siddhartha says, oh my God, what is that? (laughs) Well, maybe he didn't say, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And the charioteer explained to him, that's a dead man. And everybody meets that end. And then Siddhartha said, O worldly men, how fatal is your delusion. Inevitably, your body will crumble to dust, yet carelessly, unheedingly, you live on. But he didn't, because once he saw that, once he knew what the end was, he couldn't enjoy anything in the palace anymore. It was all trivial to him. It was all nothing. And this is what ignited that thirst to know the truth, if there's a way to find an end to suffering and death. And that's what he resolved to do. So he he set out on his spiritual path. He left the palace. He became a monk, and the rest is history. So it was the experience of encountering death that motivated his spiritual quest and ultimately his enlightenment. So this facing death totally turned his life around. And it's interesting because it was the contrast 
according to the story. Now, it's an archetypal story, but probably the prince was overly protected and he probably really hadn't, you know, thought much about death and probably something happened to him in his teenage years that made him suddenly realize, my gosh, everybody's going to die. I'm going to die. So, you know, again, the trouble is, it's not that we don't know this stuff. We don't face it. We turn away from it inwardly. We distract ourselves from it. Here's a, a story that you all should know about Ramana Maharshi. Anybody not know the story of Ramana Maharshi's enlightenment? Tell us. <laughs> <laughs> ah, well, there are a couple of you who don't know the story. Ramana Maharshi was one of the great uh, mystics of the 20th century. And when he was a teenager, and he was living in his uncle's house for some reason, and he came home one day after school, and he put his books down, and suddenly he got this, oh my God, I'm going to die. Only, apparently, he got it that he might die right there on the spot. But in any case, he didn't turn away from it, you know, call a friend or call a doctor, take a Valium or something like that. He decided, well, okay, I'm going to look into this. This is the facing death. And this is what he says about it. The shock of the fear of death drove my mind inwards. And I said to myself mentally, without actually framing the words, now death has come. What does it mean? What is it that is dying? This body dies. And then he lay down and he mimicked getting rigor mortis and dying. And then his mind's eye, he imagined them coming and carrying his body off and burning it on the funeral pyre because, you know, in India they burn bodies and stuff like that. And it all burned away. And then he goes on. The body dies, but the spirit that transcends it cannot be touched by death. That means I am the deathless spirit. All this was not dull thought. It flashed through me as vividly as living truth, which I perceived directly. Fear of death had vanished once and for all. Absorption in the self, that's the capital S, the true self, absorption in the self continued unbroken from that time on. Other thoughts might come and go like the various notes of music, but the I, the true I, continued like the fundamental shruti note that underlies and blends with all the other notes. Whether the body was engaged in talking, reading, or anything else, I was still centered on the I. So in this case, facing death led directly to enlightenment. Directly. But the trick is, he faced death. He turned into death rather than turning away from death. That was the whole trick. So this business of facing death, which is basically the impermanence of the body, it's the ultimate form of facing impermanence, is very, very important, very profound for a spiritual path. So then, how do you do it? Well, in the Buddhist tradition, they have these 
very precise, detailed, analytic meditations, uh, especially in the Theravadian tradition. They instruct the monk how to go down to town. They're living in a monastery or a encampment or something. When every they hear of a death in town, they have the corpse out for a while so people can see it. So the monks all run down to town and they note very carefully everything on their way to town. And then they note the body and they sit there for the day or two it's out and they know how it bloats and swells and gets discolored. It's the detailed descriptions of the physical changes wrought by death. And the monk has to memorize all this, see? And then the monk meditates on it. But because the monk has memorized it, then the monk can come back to the monastery and continue to meditate in an imaginary way and just really rub your nose into the fact of death. In the Tibetan tradition, um, the tantric practitioners go to the charnel grounds where they chop up the bodies. So that's another way of rubbing your nose into the fact of death. But other traditions have uh, similar practices. Listen to Al-Ghazali. He was a Sufi. Let a man in every hour look to his limbs and his extremities. Let his thoughts dwell upon how the worms must need devour them and upon the fashion in which his bones shall rot away. Let him wonder whether the worms are to begin with a pupil of his right eye or of his left eye. For there is no part of his body that shall not be food for the worms. It's going to be your right eye they bite into. (laughs) Crawl up the right nostril and start chewing away or the left one. I mean, it's going to be a feast, not just the worms. There are all sorts of maggots and insects and bacteria and whatever that just chop away. I mean, it's like this huge Thanksgiving spread you'll be. Okay, I'm not going to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so these mystics are recommending getting very concrete about this. And there's no harm in doing that. But one way or another, however we do it, it's a very powerful practice. And the final part of facing impermanence here, to try to face the impermanence of our own bodies and the inevitable fact of our physical death. So let's try this in a meditative format here. And then... uh, At the end of the meditation, we'll just silently go our way and you see what you come up with, okay? It's going to be a little guided meditation. I'm, uh, again, like priming the pump, but it's a very intimate and personal thing, really, contemplating your death. And you find the best way to do it for yourself.
So let's begin calming the mind by a little concentration practice on your prayer or mantra or your breath for a few minutes. And become aware of the present moment, just the fact of being present with all the arising and passing of phenomena. And it may seem that your death is more or less far off. But someday, this moment, this same present moment, is going to be the moment of your death. You'll be there just like you are here. Now consider all the things that you own, particularly your favorite possessions. You might want to make a catalog of them in your mind.
You might consider that in the past they brought you pleasure, comfort. But right now, at the moment of your death, what good are they? Do you have a little nest egg stashed away for your old age? Do you have any investments? Do you own your own house? A little piece of land someplace? All security against the future. But now, at the moment of your death, there is no more future. What good are they? Perhaps you think you're going to pass them on to your children. They'll have a little security. And that's being a good, responsible parent. But someday they are going to be here right now. At the moment of their deaths. And their children. And their children. What ultimate good do all those possessions do when you're here looking into the face of death? look over all our worldly possessions from the perspective of facing death, we realize however beautiful, comforting, pleasurable they are or have been, they cannot bring us true abiding happiness. Death sweeps them all away.
You know, consider the people you know. Especially family members and friends. People you can rely on if you get into trouble. Take you in if your house burns down. Lend you money if you're broke. Give you advice. Nothing else, a shoulder to cry on. But now, at the moment of your death, what ultimate help can they give you? Yes, certainly they might hold your hand, whisper comforting words in your ear, if you're in bed, prop up your pillows, all are good things to do. But nothing they can do can hold back the tide of death which is about to engulf you. Now think about the time between the now in which you are aware and the now in which you will be aware at the moment of your death. None of us know how long it's going to be. Ask yourself, between now and then, if you continue searching for happiness by grasping after worldly things or people, do you really think you're ever going to find it? Perhaps you should make a resolve to spend that precious time left looking elsewhere. 